wellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo and it's great to be here on our next podcast. Backchat explores the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, eating, moving, sleeping and also your neurology. Today we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best in your neurology. As always, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Dr. Anthony Coxon. G'day, Anthony. How are you? I'm fantastic, Paul. It is so great to be here. It's great to be in our very first, I guess we call this a live podcast. We've got a hundred or so chiropractors in front of us. That's a live podcast, isn't it? It is. So we're not in our usual traditional Rimwood North study of my house. Is that what no, we're saying? No, neither of us are wearing pyjamas. We're all dressed up for the occasion. And we've come up here from Melbourne to be at the uh, Australian Academy of Functional Neurology Symposium, uh, the seventh one of those. Uh, as for our international uh, listeners especially, they might not realise there's a bit of a rivalry between Melbourne and Sydney. Two competing states. Well, you know, we, who's better? Who do we think is better? Melbourne, of course. Well, the best thing to come out of Sydney is the road to Melbourne. We know that for oh. starters. So, uh, but you know what? Our, after today, we did leave Melbourne and it was freezing. It was. We've had, a, we've had a really cold, wet winter. And we've come up here today in Sydney. We're looking out of a window. I can see the across the harbour, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. There's not a cloud in the sky. So maybe Sydney's got something better to offer than just the road to Melbourne. <clears throat> we should, you know, give compliments to Sydney and uh, certainly today's been fantastic and we, we don't normally have lunch where we've got a Sydney Harbour Bridge in our background, let's be honest. It's a pretty special place. It's fantastic. So without further ado, let me introduce our, uh, our the person we're interviewing today, Dr. Mark Pick. Dr. Pick is a doctor of chiropractic. He's been in private practice in Beverly Hills, California since 1973. Currently, Dr. Pick has completed over 1,580 hours postgraduate in neurology through the Carrick Institute of postgraduate studies and holds a diplomat of neurology through the ACNB. He's also earned his diplomat and fellowship status in craniopathy through the International Craniopathic Society, sponsored by the SO Sacro Occipital Research Society International, and lectured through the United States, Mexico, Japan, Korea, Australia, England, France, Canada, Italy, Spain, and Switzerland since 1979. Since 1973, Dr. Pick has accomplished several thousand hours of human dissection, and one of his proudest accomplishments was his creation of a latex fibre optic model of the human central and peripheral nervous system. This was placed on loan to the Wellcome Trust for their 2002 exhibit and was displayed uh, at the Museum of Science in London. A photograph of Dr. Pick's dissection reveals the entire central and peripheral nervous system with dual, dural, meningeal structures intact, and currently is exhibited in the Wellcome Trust's new London Museum as part of a permanent display. So, Anthony, without further ado, let's welcome uh, Dr. Mark Pick to Australia. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Pick, it's so great to have you here. Uh, we had the pleasure, Paul and I, not so long ago to interview Professor Carrick uh, in a backchat uh, conference. And uh, one of the really interesting things to find out about him was how he was a military man and a boxer prior to becoming a chiropractor. You, now, you've told an interesting story today about your uh, pre-chiropractic life. Can you share yes. that with the backchat listeners? Well, basically, I was studying to be an interior designer. But I was two years into it when I realized that I'm colorblind. 
So there isn't very much call for a monochromatic designer, so I needed something else to do. And my brother and I were out camping one day, and he said, why don't we become chiropractors? I said, well, what's that? And he goes, I think you're going to spend a couple of hours uh, in the sun with people talking about prescriptions for nutrition. And I thought, well, I don't know what that is, but I'll take a look at it. And so we looked at it. And when I went into the first class, my first instructor was a little 65-year-old ball of fire by the name of Dorothea Town. And she walked out with a skull underneath her arm. It was osteology, and I knew I was home. And look how far you've come since then. Wow, yeah. that's fantastic. Dr. Peek, you know, in regards depression is a condition that's sort of growing in its incidence in this country, and I'm sure overseas in the U.S. as well. And today we've talked a lot about balance uh, and the cerebellum. Is there any non-pharmacological type management we can use with functional neurology, balance and depression with, with your experience? Well, the vestibular mechanisms fire directly into an area of the brain called the insular cortex. Uh, it also receives stimulation from the skin and the other somatic body receptors. So when these areas are excited or they send out a barrage, they're going to go to this area deep inside the, um, you, we call it the Sylvian Fisher area. Um, it's by the temporal lobe and the parietal cortex. It's deep inside. And it's the insular cortex. And it most specifically drives the back half of that cortex. And the function of the back half of the insular cortex, part of its function is to send an impulse to the front portion. And the front portion is intimately connected to the emotional centers. And the back portion quiets or inhibits the front portion. So through stimulation of the vestibular mechanisms by head rotations, uh, body spinning, and various other methodologies, along with gentle touch, we can cause the insular cortex back portion to have an effect of inhibiting the front portion so that it quiets, excuse me, so that it <clears throat> quiets down the emotional centers. Anthony, I mean, that's pretty amazing regards depression and, you know, alternatives beyond pharmacotherapy. Yeah, well, we, we, we've heard this before, haven't we, in some of our interviews um, with uh, some of the GPs who are now even recognising that a pharmacological answer to depression isn't always the best one. And sometimes just getting up and walking and moving, uh, even without even specific therapies, can have an amazing effect on depression. Yeah, it can, <clears throat> because it drives the brain. So joint feedback and muscle feedback are all very important stimulus that will go back into, again, this cortical, this uh, specifically this cortical area that feeds into that. Um, also, when we think about planning for motor activity, the planned motor activity that we use fires from the frontal cortex into the limbic system to quiet it down as well. Uh, through the basal ganglionic limbic loop system. So thinking about and planning motor activity can also have a satisfactory result of quieting down and calming down the limbic system and the emotional centers. You gave some examples earlier of, uh, of a woman who had some obvious cerebellar issues and uh, you applied a therapy and that appeared to make a significant difference. And you made the mention at the end, but just remember she's still over-medicated. Do you see this yeah. a lot in practice? And, and where, how do you go about um, having discussions with a GP or whoever else that might be in terms of managing that? 
Well, you know, GP practitioners aren't really always that open towards talking to chiropractors. So really the only thing that I'm able to do to influence them, because I am not qualified myself to take a patient off of any medication, but I'm certainly able to recognize it when the medication is something that's affecting them. You can look it up, just Google it, and you can get the information. So what we basically do is we get the names of the medications that the patient is taking, and then we Google them, and then we write down the list of all of the side effects from the medication that match the symptoms that the patient is having or the neurological deficit signs that the patient is giving. And then after we've written that entire list down, we give it to the patient and we say, please take this back to your practitioner and show them this. That must be compelling, surely. Um, now, you mentioned earlier how you've literally done thousands of dissections um, and spent who knows, tens of thousands of hours doing these sorts of things. Um, and obviously the world of neurology has changed so much in just the last 10 or 20 years. Mm. Can you give some examples, perhaps, or even just one example, where something that was thought to be common knowledge and uh, pretty much set in stone, and yet research has shown the opposite to be true? Well, I don't really know very much other than the fact in regards to, for instance, the... Uh the thought that uh, the right brain has an effect on the left side of the body and the left brain has an effect on the right side of the body, it's commonly thought that the right brain receives new information. And so whenever we're learning new information, we always take it into the right brain. And then once we've assimilated it into the right brain and we recognize it for what it is, we then kick it through the corpus callosum and into the left brain where it's then stored for... Um, basically future um, with drawing it up again to bring it to uh, our attention when we want to utilize it uh, in our thought processes for whatever we're doing. Uh, but lately it's also been discovered that that's not the case. It, new information doesn't always go into the right brain first. It's been discovered that new information often enters the left brain first so that the body can scan it and go, do I know this? Have I, been, have I ever been exposed to this? And then afterwards, it'll kick it over to the right brain if it's new, where the right brain will then take it in and simulate it, and then the right brain will kick it back to the left brain again. So it's kind of a ping-pong effect. But that's something that's relatively new. Don't you think, Anthony, this uh, neurological work's never going to be fixed, is it? It's never going to be mutable. It's always going to be changing. Well, that's exactly what Pre Professor Carrick said in uh, his last um, podcast with us, isn't he? The, the, the uh, neuro functional neurology is a, a moving and fluid world, that's for sure. Yeah. Dr. Pick, you mentioned today about uh, the relationship between eye movements and chronic seated posture. I think you used the example of an accountant and the relationship sometimes with eye movements and sitting for long time periods. Do you, yeah. can, you, can you elaborate a bit more on that for our, for our back chat audience? Yeah. Um, the pupils of the eyes are meant for um, constricting and dilating. And as you're looking at an object... If it's moving closer to you, in order to focus in on it, your pupils will constrict. And as it moves away from you, they will dilate in order for you to be able to see clearly as the object moves further away. If you're sitting at a table, say working on a computer, and you're constantly at the same uh, depth of uh, perception and visually to, um, to your work, uh, you have to maintain your pupil in a tonic constrictive state and your eyes aren't really wandering around, so your extraocular muscles are also held in a tonic state. 
It sets up a scenario not unlike that of trying to hold, say, a weight, like a pail of water, straight out in front of you. Try doing that for about five minutes and see what happens to the fatigability factor. And then if we look at the association of the eye muscles as they're relating to a tract known as the medial longitudinal fasciculus, this tract carries impulses that are connected not only to the eye muscles, but they connect to the cerebellum for basically motor control, and they fire down into the motor cells that drive the neck muscles. So it sets up a tonic constriction to the neck muscles that often will put the patient into a state of constant neck spasticity and pain. Uh, and this is actually something that is occupationally uh, brought on through this constant work. It's a relatively easy fix for people if they just start doing some exercises like near-far gazing, uh, looking at their thumb and following it in and moving it out a couple of times while they're in the process of doing their work, like every 10 minutes or so, go up and down, keeping your eye on your thumbs. That's one thing they could do to help that situation as yeah. an example. It's a changing world with technology. I mean, years ago, so much of uh, what we would do for work would be labour-intensive. So you might say the chiropractors of old will be dealing with back injuries related to manual labour. Now, today, we've got so many people sitting at desks and sedentary factors, and sitting being the new smoking is, a, is the common tag phrase. So I'm sure not only are we seeing a lot of these things now, it's probably something we're going to see a lot more of in the future. Um, now, one of the things that I found really interesting about your talk today, and of course, it was all about balance and dizziness, so the vestibulocerebellum featured prominent in that. And um, one of the things you uh, talked about was how the uh, lateral cerebellum is more involved in terms of its afferent input from the uh, distal extremities, so the fingers and the toes, and of course the cortex. And, um, and so I guess if a chiropractor is looking to do some neurorehabilitation to that area of the brain, the lateral cerebellum, then spinal adjustments aren't really the, uh, the avenue to affect that part of the uh, nervous system, is it? Correct, they're not. Um, spinal diagnosis or spinal uh, treatments and manipulations are more associated with the central portion of the cerebellum, which is called the vermis. Um, the lateral cerebellum being driven from the brain is really more involved with mental rehearsal. So we have the patient do mental rehearsals, and because the lateral cerebellum and its associated deeper nuclear structure um, are also connected to the fingers and the toes, especially the fingers, because the fingers are involved with complex, intricate work, which is more mentally driven, by having the subject to do things with their hands, or you can even do manipulations of the hands, but have them also um, do practicums within themselves where they are practicing, say, throwing a basketball into a basket or other mental activities like that, that's going to do more for rehabbing that particular area than an adjustment would. So that, that work in terms of throwing the basketball into the, into the basket, this is something that they're just thinking of doing. It's not yep. necessarily something that they're physically doing. It's no, they're thinking it. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Pick, uh, years ago when I was going through university, we talked about the cerebellum mainly helping with feedback back to the central sort of nervous system. But today you mentioned about areas of feed forward and efferent copy. Could you just explain a little bit about those processes to our back chat audience? Well, that's uh, associated again with the outer portion or the lateral portion of the cerebellum. <clears throat> it's a mental rehearsal that occurs 
where you're having feedback from the cerebellum back to the areas of the brain, motor areas of the brain, where there is a uh, thought process that undergoes um, the development of a motor activity. So in the efferent copy reflex, the impulse is going from the brain back into the brain stem into an area called the pontine nuclear structure that crosses back over to the cerebellum on the other side, and it feeds back from the cerebellum up again back to the brain. And it's a cyclic rehearsal that's consistently going on over and over again, creating a mental awareness of where the person is in relationship to the motor action that they are trying to achieve. So in the process of doing this motor rehearsal, while they are in the process of doing the motor activity, helps to stabilize the what we call shunt stabilizer muscles that help to protect the joints and help the smoothness of the motor activity. So it's a reflex pattern that is generated that is sort of a check and balance system to make sure that you maintain your uh, purpose in your motor activity that you want to uh, achieve. And at the same time, it is a very, very, very powerful stimulant into the cerebellum that really activates that system and strengthens it and activates what's known as a genetic expression or early gene response. It's like making the cells do push-ups. And by doing that, it actually will cause them uh, more genetic material to develop in the cell. The cells will make what are called mitochondria so that it has a stronger energy pack to it. The cells actually build up more protein in them being negatively charged protein normally uh, will actually make the cell much more stable. And in three days, you can actually see the change under an electron microscope usually. Isn't it amazing that historically we used to think genetics would affect the environment, but now we're sort of starting to say that environment's affecting the genetics. Yeah, it's interesting. There was a study that was actually produced by some friends of, uh, of ours who, uh, one of them was a molecular biologist out of Stanford, and it had to do with genetic material. And they um, had several subjects that were um, multi-personalities. And in one of their personalities, they actually had like an autoimmune condition or a genetic uh, terminal illness that when they ran the blood tests and all the tests on them, all the tests came back positive. But when the individual switched to a different personality that didn't contain the illness, they redid the blood tests and nothing showed. So the thought here is that, yes, genetics will affect us, but somehow we may have the ability to turn the genetic expression on and off. That's incredibly powerful. Anthony? Uh, okay, we're going to throw it over to the audience now. First time we've done this. So um, Dr. Ken Ewan, a uh, Carrick diplomat. Well done, Ken. You're going to be the very first person other than Paul and myself to ask a question on Backchat. Away you go. Dr. Pick, I have a question. Um, is there any correlation between the semicircular canal alignment that we were discussing earlier and the spinal distortions such as scoliosis? And are there any techniques that you can suggest that may have a positive influence on these? Well, as far as I know, I would think that uh, certainly uh, semicircular canal imbalance and a vestibular imbalance, which would definitely feed back into the cerebellum, could cause conditions of hypotonia, which could be ipsilateral in which case the feedback to the brain could also have an effect on the output of the uh, cortical reticular association to what we call disinhibition to certain muscle groups. 
So we could have one side of the body being weak, extensively weak in its extension ability, and the other side could be overtonic or disinhibited, and that would then cause a distortionary pull to the spinal musculature that I could certainly see could lend itself towards a scoliosis development, in which case um, you could affect both more probably by coming in through the vestibular mechanisms, driving the vestibular mechanisms and having them feed back to the contrabrain to activate the brain's control over the reticular system. And as a result, if this is something that is caused due to this hemispheric and cerebellar vestibular demise, you could, in fact, bring them into a more balanced state and take them out of the scoliosis or at least reduce it. It is a possibility. So following on from that, you mentioned uh, earlier today that in all your years of doing cadaver dissections, you've never seen a symmetrical skull. That's very true. I've and, never seen a symmetrical body. And, and I guess that's the follow-on question. You know, uh, there are some chiropractic techniques, and I guess as chiropractors, you know, I even walk around the house trying to straighten up the paintings, and I, I like to see things straight. Is, is, is that approach in chiropractic realistic? Should we be looking to have no. a straight spine? No, I don't believe that it is realistic at all. What we need to be looking at is having a normally high optimal functional spine, okay? Straight isn't really always the best thing for the individuals. You're going to have people who are going to come in and one side of the vertebral column will be different in shape than the other side. Uh, a pedicle is an area that attaches from the body of the vertebrae back to the back end of the vertebrae where you have the other joints that lock in. They're called facets to stabilize the back end. And the pedicle is the bridge between the two. And underneath it and above it are where the nerves exit from the spine. Now, on some people, they actually have a pedicle system that's shorter on one side than the other side. If you look at somebody who actually has a genetically formed scoliosis, one of the things you're going to notice on them is that on one side, the ribs are longer and thinner. And on the other side, they're shorter and fatter. If you try to straighten that person out, do you know how distorted they're going to look from the front? Think about it, because they're not genetically set up for it. For them, their scoliosis may be their state of health, okay? You look at somebody with a scoliosis, you're looking at somebody's what would normally be their front view, you're looking at their side view, but it's in the front, okay? If you look at them from a side view, it looks like a front view. So shape isn't necessarily going to rule over health. Okay, function rules over health. If we keep them functionally appropriate for their individual needs, and everybody is different, so we have to treat them differently, then you're going to find that this person's quality of life is going to be improved far more than if we try to paint a picture of what we believe they should look like, and then we go in to try to change that. It's not all about just making sure that the building blocks are exactly straight, is it? No. And, you know, Anthony, we talk a lot about survivability, don't we? And I think Dr. Pick's alluded to the fact that, you know, that our body's adapting to survive. So sometimes maybe we're trying to mix up, mix up the formula too much to try and make it seem optimal when really, you know, it's not, not required. Indeed. Uh, do we have our next question? We do. We have uh, Dr. Amy Norman is going to ask a question uh, from the audience. Amy? Hi. So you mentioned earlier that you now have a treatment table that is a waterbed. Um, could you please elaborate and tell us how that has changed some of your treatment? Yeah. Um, it's probably about maybe 39 years ago or so. 
um, when I was treating patients, um, there were times when I would do like cervical work on the patient and I would have the patient lie on their back and I would have my hands under their neck. And I might work on their neck for about 15 minutes to just do an unwinding and a release of the muscle or something like that, not a high velocity, because they were about 80 years old and they couldn't handle a high velocity maneuver. Well, I noticed that a majority of time when a patient would lie on their back on a typical chiropractic table for any length of time, they would start to complain of SI pain, sacroiliac pain, or lumbar pain and other problems setting in because of that. So it dawned on me that I needed something that was going to be a better cushion for these people. Plus, I also did a lot of transfascial work on these people where I would work the back to the front area. So I'd have one hand under the patient and the other hand on top of the patient, and I would work the transverse fascial planes of the body and trying to release them. Well, I found it was difficult to get the arm under there, and it was really quite uncomfortable as the weight of their body was crushing my arm against the table, coupled with the pain the patient was in. I finally came up with the idea of using a water table. Um, I slept on a waterbed, and that's what gave me the idea initially. As a matter of fact, I slept on a waterbed for well over 20 years, and I finally had to get rid of it. But if you want to know the reason why I got rid of it, it was because I was so comfortable I never wanted to get out of it in the morning. I was perpetually late for everything. <laughs> so I had to get rid of it to survive. Okay, So I figured the water table was the best way to go. I can have the patient floating on the table, and that way they're not compressing the SI joints, and they wouldn't develop these pains. That was the theory. So I put it to use. I figured out it. I had one made. I specifically had it made out of a crib mattress, an infant crib mattress, when they used to make water crib mattresses. And I put it on a Lloyd's Galaxy 900 table, which is a high-low table that also elevates this way. Of course, I took out the high-low part that raises the head up because no one wants to see a pregnant-looking table because the water sinks down. So I have a table that will raise the patient up and down on a vertical level so that I can get in there and I can work on them. I found that if I needed to take out something like an anteriority or do a, uh, a an adjustment of a rollback scenario, I could simply just take a table board from uh, Stephens Meyer's company. This is an SOT table board. And I would put it down on the table and roll the patient back over that. And the water would spread out under the board and it would harden the surface and it would be stable enough that I could do a nice adjustment. So I found that that really worked well. But then I also discovered that the water table allowed for increased mobility so that I could actually do mobilization techniques, and I could even do uh, mobile palpation techniques and check for fixations of joints, etc., simply by starting to rock the table and getting a wave-like action going while my hand was running up and down their spine, and I could feel where they were locking and fixating and where they were moving through. And then I found that there was a therapeutic element to it if I held the bone in the direction that I wanted it to go, and then I started doing the rocking action to rock and open up the facet system and get it to start firing its deeper mechanoreceptive system, and I could actually drive the hemispheres and change neurology with it as well. And it rocks in multiple directions. It's not just longitudinal. You can go side to side with it as well. So it became endless what you could do with the table. And that's how I got into it, if that's answering your question. Well, that's, that's really taking innovation to another level, isn't it? A, a water table. 
I mean, I can really understand so many benefits of that from a neurological perspective. As someone who has lots of kids in my practice, I can just imagine one kid being on one end and another kid jumping and bouncing them all the way into the next uh, room. But uh, as long as you keep the children off it, I'm sure that will work fantastic. Um, Okay, our next uh, question comes from another uh, neurology diplomat and Dr. Helen Sexton. Dr. Pick, thank you for your presentation. Where do you see chiropractic today? And what does chiropractic have to do now to ensure its longevity in the healthcare world? My opinion of chiropractic today is that it is in a renaissance. Um, We are and we've always claimed to be neurological change agents. And I see us as still having that role even more now than before. I think that we need to make sure that whatever we do is scientifically based so that we can say with certainty that there is a reason for doing what it is that we are trying to achieve in treating our patients. But I'm seeing changes now through chiropractic that I never saw before. I'm seeing people come out of comas. I'm seeing people who were deaf uh, here and various other things. Uh, I'm seeing a number of traumatic brain injury people now that uh, we're making some major headway with and some we're not able to help, but at least we can see when we're not able to. But I see chiropractic as moving more towards neurology-based um, because we've always claimed to be neuro- into the world of neurology. We were always saying that we were taking pressure off of nerves and that we were returning normal neural flow. Well, we are in a way. We're affrontating. If you want to talk about neural flow, well, there is the um, you know cytoplasmic fluid inside the neuron and the uh, neuroaxis, and that does get pinched. There are things that can affect that, that can cut that off. So we're not that far-fetched from what we used to say, but it's a lot more than what we used to say. And I think that if we stay true to what it is that we are trying to achieve here, and we actually continue studying into the the realm of functional neurology, I think that we are going to really make some major headways in improving the life of our patients and the quality of their life. And I see that the profession is going to, has nowhere to go but grow. Um, I do also see that as we get more out there uh, in the um, light, because we are helping people, I see more resistance coming our way. Uh, but that's to be expected. Okay. You know, when you're doing something that's right, you're always going to meet more resistance. That's how it is. Just stay true to what you're doing. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people out there that give um, practice management techniques, ways to build your practice so on. And if you don't mind, I'm going to give you my practice management technique clue. This is how I say you build your practice. This is how I say we make chiropractic grow. Get them well. Don't assume that everybody is the same. Don't treat everybody the same. Make sure that when you treat people, that you are treating them for the individual that they are at that moment in time. Because they will not be the same person the next time you see them. Not if you're doing your job right. So, am I getting to your question or am I just jumping around? Okay, good. 
Dr. Pig, on, on top of that, I suppose, and what Pearl's a wisdom, Anthony, regards, you know, our fo- we put a lot of energy in our profession about problems we have, but if we focus our energy on getting results and getting pa- patients well, you know, we're not going to have all this argu- these arguments no, in our not. fraternity. Uh, you know, if I may inject something here, um, practice building seriously, and there should be no problem with that. Um, Josephine and I are both chiropractors in our, our building that we have in our clinic in Beverly Hills. We have nine other chiropractors in the building. It's their own practice. They're not associated with us. We're just their landlord. So we have no problem with our practice in keeping our practice up, and, and they're not having any problems either, right? And the reason why everybody is doing fine is simply because our focus is on getting them well. And you put your attention into helping people, and you really put your effort into that, then they're going to bang down your door. So, and that's the way it is. Our profession will shine. Just following on from that, and I guess a, a, a somewhat of a um, futuristic "Where is chiropractic going?" question. Um, you probably know that at the World Federation um, Congress in Greece earlier this year, I think it was around about that time that uh, a few Anglo-American, oh, sorry, Anglo-European colleges, and I think the South African College released a statement about chiropractic and the future of chiropractic. And in particular, one of the um, statements that was interesting was their um, attitude to, to subluxation and the word subluxation, claiming that it was sh- uh, of historical significance, but that would be about it, that the word was no longer should be used within the profession. What are your thoughts on that? Subluxation in its truest sense of the word for a chiropractor is basically stating that the vertebrae is not functionally aligned to the vertebra above it or below it and that it's not functioning appropriately. Um, this is not the typical statement of what a subluxation is in the real scientific community. In the scientific community, a subluxation cannot be a subluxation unless it meets certain criteria, like, for instance, soft tissue damage with actual joint displacement. This would be the true realm of a subluxation. So they're coming from that perspective. And we have to be realistic in what we're doing, too. And we could resist the definition factor and stick to our guns about subluxation as we present it as a chiropractic profession. Or we could go, yeah, you're right, you know, it's a misalignment. It's not a subluxation that we're seeing. But that misalignment still has a profound effect on the mechanoreceptors that it's associated with. And it's compromised their function and come from it from more of a neurological based scenario than a musculoskeletal scenario. And we say that the subluxation, or in this case, what we're going to now call maybe a misalignment, because that's what the overall scientific community calls it, just means that we are all basically in the same boat. We expect them to accept us, but we also have to accept them. Right? And unless we're willing to all take our ego and put it aside for the betterment of our patients, who's the real loser here? So our profession has got nothing to fear and our profession's got nothing to lose if we're constantly centering our attention on our patients' well-being because our patients will fight for us. If we concentrate on getting them well, 
if we do it from a neural-based center of approach, which is, can be well-documented, and we document what we do. Some of the problems that we run into within chiropractic is that a lot of our professionals do not document very well. How many of you, for instance, can actually sit down and look at a chart of a treatment that you gave a patient 10 years ago and recall exactly what it is that you did to that patient? Seriously. Can you do that? You should be able to. We should all be able to do that. So if we can do things like that, then we will find that anybody who challenges us will not have a leg to stand on because we can tell them exactly what we did and we can tell them why we did it and we can show them the research behind the logic for what we did. And that research is based upon the total scientific community, not just what we say even as chiropractors. And that's where we, I think, need to go with this if we really truly want to see our profession evolve and develop. We don't have to fight them. All we've got to do is do our thing appropriately and they'll be the ones who will be worried. Very wise counsel. Um, now, Paul, we're very lucky to have interviewed a, a lot of great chiropractors and health pro- uh, professionals. Uh, one of the things that we like to do on Backchat is not just to learn from their vast range of knowledge, but also to learn a little bit about the person. So um, with a little bit of um, latitude here, uh, Dr. Pick, we want to know what makes Mark Pick tick. And in particular, if there was some moment, incident, influence that shaped your career, that, you know, that made you decide that, apart from the, obviously, the colour blindness, that you're not going to be a, um, uh, an interior decorator, you're going to be a chiropractor and you're going to go down this neurological pathway. Was there some, some little moment that you can recall that really sort of sparked that interest in you? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Uh, you know, in my younger years, I used to always like to do massage work on people and stuff like that. Uh, and I used to always like to massage my mother and so on because she had rheumatoid arthritis and it would help her with her pain. And it gave me a certain amount of satisfaction to see that it, I was able to help relieve some of the pain with that. When I got into chiropractic, I guess it was really within my first, first two years into practice, I realized that when a patient was coming in to see me, I was all excited about the fact that this patient was coming in to see me. But after about the second or third treatment, the excitement of treating them was gone. And the question that I asked myself was, why am I not as excited? And I realized that it's because I gave all of myself in the first three treatments. And then everything else started becoming repetitious. And I thought, you know, I really just don't know enough. And this person isn't getting any better. And they're just kind of tagging along. I need to learn more. I need to be able to give them a better quality of life. So I decided then two things. One, I was never going to stop studying because you never know enough. It's the bottom line truth. The other thing was that I was going to make sure that every time I saw a patient, I gave them more than I did the time before. So... That's what formed that whole scenario with me, and that's what drove me. And then when I started seeing patients respond and get better, and I noticed the quality of their life changed, the smile alone was enough to just, you know, warm me to a point where it just drove me to want to continue on and do more. I'm here for service. And 
getting somebody over a difficult physical condition that is really affecting their quality of life, to be able to be a part of helping them get through that and have a better quality of life is absolutely wonderful. I mean, Anthony, I think uh, if you've been in practice 30 years, if you've been in practice one day, that last five minutes is worth listening to a few times, I'd suggest, because uh, many pearls of wisdom. And, you know, I, I don't know what you think, Anthony, but, you know, the people we've interviewed now, there's a, there's a, there's a consistent ingredient for those who are successful, and it's curiosity. They just don't accept mediocrity and they never stop learning. And, you know, we are so privileged to have uh, someone like Dr. Picky in Australia. We sure are. Thank you. Now, Dr. Pick, just to finish off with one final question in the sense of perhaps coming back to balance and perhaps trying to look at our audience from a lay perspective who may be listening to this sort of uh, podcast trying to take some take-home tips for them to perhaps improve balance or cerebellum function. That is very general because obviously we have to assess patients before we give specific advice. But are there any sort of uh, bits of general advice you could give? In regards to balance? Yeah, in regards to balance. Well, yeah, here's the bottom line. If you don't use it, you're going to lose it. So if you're having a problem with balance, your best bet is to practice doing things to improve your balance, like even holding on to the end of a chair and standing on one leg um, until you feel more confident and those muscles have learned to support you. So wherever you're finding that you're having difficulty, make sure that you have the support you need by something to hold on to. Uh, but always don't try to avoid the issue of the balance or try to avoid where you're feeling insecure within your balance more importantly, become a warrior and look at going after it and seeing if you can do something to strengthen it and enhance it. Okay, Just don't move too fast. It's a nice caveat. So I guess we, we're up to the time where we're going to be wrapping things up. Um, of course, this is day one of a four-day uh, uh, seminar that we're here today. For, for those in the room and also, more importantly, for those listening, um, if you want to get the information that uh, Dr. Mark Pick is going to be presenting on uh, this weekend, and of course we haven't even mentioned about how rock tape can influence cerebellar function, so some very you know, fantastic uh, practical applications uh, for this work, all you need to do is to go to the AAFN website, which is aafn.org.au, and you can actually purchase the video for the entire weekend, which not only includes Dr. Mark Pick, but also includes Heidi Harvick, PhD in neurophysiology, Julie Trelevin, who's the um, uh, senior researcher in whiplash and neck pain at the University of Queensland, and many other speakers. So um, we encourage you to go on board there. Also, obviously, uh, Mark does many seminars right throughout the, the year. If you want to find out more information about his products or his seminars, you just go to Mark Pick Creations, and that's Mark with a C, creations, plural, dot com. So markpickcreations.com. And I think we've got one final little uh, wrap-up because we've got the... Um, the, the next Carrick course, um, and I'm just about to walk over here to the uh, current president of the AFAN, uh, Dr. Carlo and Renato. Uh, what are the dates for that, Carlo? Great. Thank you. Uh, uh, the dates start in October 9th, 10th and 11th is Module 1 of this year. And the second module is uh, the 13th, 14th and 15th of November. The, uh, the, the first two modules are run at the Ridges at Sydney Central. 
The following modules starting next year in February are at the Y Hotel, which is at the Hyde Park. And Carla, could you just tell us what, what would someone expect if they're you know, looking to do this sort of work? Uh, what sort of expectations would they be uh, being attained by atten attending the course? Sure. Uh, something that I often mention to, to uh, prospective students is the one thing you can be guaranteed that it will do is improve clinical competency uh, with improved patient outcomes. And I often offer advice that this could be applicable to people with a standard musculoskeletal practice, those wanting to know a bit more of the why and how things work, um, those people who uh, have a, a further interest in neuroscience and want to stay contemporary with clinical neuroscience, um, and everyone in between. Well, thank you, Dr. Ronaldo. Thank you for that. And uh, without further ado, we'd like to also thank Dr. Pick for his incredible wisdom and professional expertise in providing us tonight on Backchat, but also for the conference for the whole weekend. So could you please put your hands together for Dr. Pick? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates at Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com.au forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links for today's show will be on our Backchat for podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave with one thought. Be the best at what you do and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.